Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Keith Law Show. I am your host, Keith Law, senior baseball writer for The Athletic. As I join you, my first ever top 100 prospect ranking for The Athletic has just gone live for subscribers. I ranked the top 100 prospects in the minors. That post appeared on Monday. On Tuesday, my list of the a few prospects who just missed that top 100 went up. And for the rest of this week, my organizational reports, team-by-team top 20s with more scouting notes, will appear for all the American League teams. The National League teams will appear next week, as well as a full ranking on Monday of all 30 Major League Farm Systems, ranking them first through 30th. So uh, please stay tuned for more of that prospect content. Thank you so much to all of you who've already read, who've subscribed uh, right off of my articles, who've sent some really nice feedback uh, on various parts of what's run so far. I really appreciate all of that. Well, now it is my pleasure to be joined by my good friend, Eric Longenhagen, the lead prospect writer for Fangraphs, who earlier this month put out a top 100 ranking of his own. And after someone on Twitter encouraged us to fight about it, I believe we're going to do that. It says here, to the death. I, I, I don't know that that's exactly what I signed up for, Eric. Well, you have to read the terms and conditions, Keith. I never do that. Uh, I'm, I'm ready. I have a second uh, and my heaviest coffee mug, and I'm ready to throw down. So. Oh, I have a Santoku. It's pretty sharp. I don't know what that is. We should probably just move on and talk about prospects. Yeah, we should talk about players. Yeah, so you have Julio Rodriguez over Jared Kalanick. Why? <laughs> I mean, I have them within two spots of one another, right? Yes, so yeah, this is yeah. the state of our discourse. Is like, yes, I can't help but take you seriously. Yeah. Um, <laughs> For listeners who haven't seen Eric's list, Eric has Rodriguez at nine overall. Um, and he is the second youngest player in your top 10, actually. And then you have Jared Kalanick at 11. Both are outfield prospects in the Seattle system. So it's also, I just also think it's kind of fun to directly uh, compare those two. Whereas I, I think, and I mean, I'm not striving for industry consensus here, but I think I'm a little more in line. Whereas Kalanick 8 and Julio Rodriguez 19. Saying I'm more in line with the industry, just having Kalanick higher. Not saying I'm right at all. Um, and I, I Legitimately, you do want to hear what your argument is for having them in, in the other direction because they're both very talented. Yeah. Um, got a good look at Julio during the fall league where he was one of, if not the youngest guy here in Arizona. And just to watch him comport himself offensively against the most advanced pitching he's ever seen at the end of the longest season he's ever played, I just think that there are special attributes that I outline in the, in the piece it did have to do with variability in his swing, depending on pitch location. That is just sort of an innate thing that uh, I've seen in like very few hitters, or at least that I've noticed. Totally acknowledge that maybe there are people who have done this who aren't good hitters, but it is like the Miguel Cabrera type of uh, footwork variation, depending on pitch location, that allows the barrel to get to pitches in different parts of the zone for Julio. Uh, that I think is really, really special. And then uh, Kelnick I like very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think he's more okay in center field than he is uh, special there. So I think the defensive gap between the two is relatively small, and I prefer the Julio Rodriguez-hit power combination to Kelnick's. Kelnick's exit velos were sneaky fine, they, uh, whereas uh, Julio's are top-of-the-scale type exit velo stuff, um, 92 miles per hour on average, um, whereas Kelnick's are a little bit below that, 90. And at their age, 
that gap I think is is made a little bit more significant than it sounds, you know, just to say it's a two mile per hour difference. I think they're very close, like and candidly, I think if you asked the Mariners that they they are probably split in the room who you who they like. And I do agree with you that the industry consensus is probably leaning toward Kelmick because Julio has some approach issues, um, yep. which especially if you're talking to like front office folks, the feedback uh, is, you know, teams are more scared of chase rates, stuff that uh, they have yes. access to that we do not as readily. Yep. I agree. I absolutely agree with that. And I, I, I will say, I think one of the other places that you and I differ then is uh, the value of the defensive gap, which I think probably translates to, I like Kellenic's defense in center a little more than you do, and I like Rodriguez's defense in right a little bit less than you do, and it's just the sure. sum of those two little marginal differences pushes them a little bit further apart. Because what you described, I, I actually saw Rodriguez put the ball in play, but not. I don't think he actually got a hit. I saw him walk uh, when I saw him this summer. But I walked away saying, damn, that's a good swing. Like just one of those. You're, yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. I'm, I'm, I'm good. You know, unless this guy weighs 350 pounds, I'm, I'm pretty much in on the bat. I was very skeptical when the Mariners sent him right to low A. Some yeah, that was I was selfish. too. I wanted to see him oh, in sure. Arizona. <laughs> to send someone that young mm-hmm. right from the Dominican Summer League to the middle of you know, West Virginia. Uh, that's a cultural leap that to expect a teenager to to be able to deal with and then perform at his job day to day. It's and yeah, he exceeded my expectations certainly. And um, now it'll be interesting to see what the Mariners do. They have an, another player yes, like this, Noel B. Marte, who was in the DSL last year, was probably a little too physically mature for that. His numbers were ridiculous down there. They could arguably assign him aggressively next year, whether that's to short season ball or right to low A uh, in April. So it's going to be interesting to see what they do with that guy now that they've had success with this pathway for Julio. You just bring up an interesting question that I've been thinking about and talking to some scouts about to some front office guys. Well, I'd love your take. Uh, My take is probably going to be obvious from the question, which is with the success of a couple of 18-year-old Latin American prospects the last few years in full season ball, I think this was really true of Vlad Jr. It's especially been true of Wander Franco, who's number one on both of our lists. Do you think that this is further encouraging teams to try to jump the super young kids to low A, figuring, one, if the kid's really that good, they'll find out quick and he'll be extremely valuable within the industry – and two, also, and you've, you've probably heard this, I've mentioned this, I think you've mentioned this too publicly, that if the kid just does okay and is super young for the level, it completely alters the way he's valued in teams' analytical models. If you are 18 and even performing adequately in low A, you look like a star the way that most teams' analytical models value age relative to level. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, to your first point, uh, I I think that, yes, pushing someone very young to a level that is much more aggressive than is typical for someone that age to be playing and having them perform, it does create almost like an elite asset, right? There were a couple other players, Julio Rodriguez's age, who were sent to full season ball last year or in some other form of aggressive assignment, right? Luis Garcia with the Phillies. Mm-hmm. Luis Garcia Ugh. hit a buck 86. And looked... But like he was hitting a buck eighty six, right? But he was eighteen, 
in yep. full season. Ball. And and small. You saw him. Did you see him over the summer? Sure. When you came back east. He's, yeah. Yeah, at Lakewood. Um, yeah, I did too. I saw him multiple times over the course of the season, and he not only did, he looked physically unready, and by July or so, he looked emotionally worn out. Like he looked defeated at the plate, which was which just nobody wants to see that. That that's not helping anybody. Then to your second point, yes, teams I think have a firm understanding that other teams' pro models. One of the driving variables is the player's age relative to level. And so you'll see more promotions. And I think, yes, like even the second half of the year, they push a guy to a level that is a little bit tough uh, for what would be expected. Um, it's not unusual. It's never been unusual to do something like that. But I do think there is more intent behind it uh, to, create, to inflate that player's value in other teams' pro models. And um, so, yeah, there are and the other the other phrase that has been mentioned to me by front office folks is elite players, elite big leaguers are just elite all the time. It's very rare right. that they have any developmental hiccups at all. They are just the types who j- do coast through the minors, basically. And there are some exceptions, right? Like Byron Buxton was incredible all through the minors. There may be some indicators that the breaking ball recognition stuff would be an issue, but he performed the whole time. Brandon Wood performed the whole time. Buster Posey had hiccups early in his big league career. Um, so there are some exceptions to this, but most front offices believe that if you think you have an elite player and you push him, chances are he's just going to perform anyway. This is what Wander Franco has done, which is more or less confirmed that he is elite. And Luis Garcia didn't do last year, which is more or less confirmed that he is not. He is right. Yes. And it was, there was some thought after the GCL performance by Luis Garcia. Again, I should emphasize that's the Phillies Luis Garcia, not the Nationals yeah, Luis Garcia, not. not the Astros Luis Garcia, who might actually be the best prospect Luis Garcia in the minors right now, the Astros one, which would be a rather interesting turn of events, but that's a separate discussion. But that. Let's talk about this. Okay. Okay. Because, let's do I mean, that. We talk about individual players. Great. Like, sure. The differences we have, and I do want to talk about more of that stuff, but. <laughs> how are you beginning has the way you're thinking about pitching and mm-hmm. how you're lining up a prep list has it evolved what are the things that are sort of on the cutting edge of what you're thinking about and considering because the Astros do have a lot of these guys like Luis Garcia like Enoli Paredes like Christian Javier who some teams super duper highly value I think mm-hmm. that some of the trades that the Rays have made in the last year Nick Solak for Peter Fairbanks, yep. Jesus Sanchez for Nick Anderson, who's a 29-year-old reliever, have made me question whether I'm properly valuing elite high-leverage relief prospects. And I'm curious if you have had any changes to the way you think about that or pitching in general. Pitching in general, yes. Elite relief prospects, no, not yet. Um, to the latter point, really, because we're not seeing a, a I don't think we're seeing any evidence yet of a change in the attrition rates for those prospects. Now, if we do, that would call for, I think, a change in approach to valuing those guys. I mean, just the, going back to you know, 20 years ago when I was in the Jays front office, the, you know, teams talked about relief prospects, but the thought was, I know in our front office, I believe in Oakland's front office at the time, other sort of like-minded front offices was that the good big league relievers – they're failed starters. They weren't relievers all the way through. They're rare exceptions. You'd get a um, a Houston Street, right? He was a reliever, 
in uh, University of Texas, right? He was a reliever in college, and he was a reliever all the way through. He was drafted as a reliever in the first round, got to the big leagues as a reliever, et cetera. But the vast majority of big league relievers were failed starters. I think that's probably still true. Maybe we'll be a little more likely to see some relief prospects get through, but I think the attrition rate is still going to be really high until I see more evidence that that's not true, that the attrition rate has improved. Um, I'm not going to rank relief prospects any higher than I have historically. However, I am definitely considering pitchers differently as, and I'm, I'm in this case, I'm really trying to follow what teams are telling me uh, individual scouts or what front office executives are telling me about how they're valuing pitchers differently. A lot of it is just in the language. You have a lot of the same conversations as I do probably with some of the same people and some different ones. In fact, I know some of the same people because at least once this winter I would find out you would either just talk to the person I was talking to, or you were talking to them later the same day. And a lot of them will just mention things like uh, his fastball has good characteristics. It is a high quality pitch. Mm. That's language I did not hear three or four years ago. And that's entirely for listeners who are, are wondering what those mean. It is referring to the things we know about the pitch beyond velocity that teams are learning from TrackMan or similar systems, things like Spin rates, spin rates being the most obvious one. I would also say extension. Pitchers with generally with extension, that's generally less less about one pitch than about all pitches, and it is a function of their deliveries. That is something I hear about a lot more frequently. And the fact that teams are emphasizing that so much, multiple teams are, tells me that they believe that it is valuable and that it is a predictor of major league success. And I think I need to stay with that. One to make sure I'm accurately reflecting what is being said about players in the industry. And two, also, cause just like you do, I, I want to get them right. I want to get yeah. the right players in the right order. And if, if teams think this stuff matters, then I need to be open to it. This brings me to the next guy who we have a pretty drastic difference on, because I mm-hmm. think it is for these reasons that we have our difference. Yep. And it's Royals lefty Daniel Lynch. Yep. Who you have at 13, Mm-hmm. And I have at now I'm looking at the war leaderboard for relievers. And yes, you're right. Most of them are field starters. <laughs> um, I have Lynch in my 50 future value tier, which is like to say, I think he's a league average starter, the type of pitcher who accumulates two, two and a half, maybe three war annually. Mm-hmm. Um, the trait that you did not mention, the fastball characteristic that you did not mention that I think is the big mover is vertical movement. And spin rate is a, variable in creating vertical movement. And then the other thing is like seam uniformity, which is a word I swear I can say, and spin axis. And some of it I think is approach angle too, but I know less about that. So Lynch, lefties that throw like 94, 97, there ain't many, right? I think it's, it's probably Blake Snell end of big league starter lefties who throw that hard list. Yeah. Lynch's, Heater to me, and this is a guy I've seen a bunch of times now, and I've used our high-speed camera to look at the seam orientation on his fastball. It's more of a sinker shape uh, that I think will miss fewer bats than is expected given the fact that it's 94-97. I'd rather have a higher arm slot backspinning fastball to do that type of thing. And so looking at it, so that is why I think I've got Lynch uh, towards the back of my list, whereas he is towards the the front of yours is that I just, it's same thing with Sixto Sanchez. Uh, same thing with um, like Adonis Medina is not on my list anymore, although he wouldn't have been anyway, but it's why you love Tariq Skubal. 
It's why you love uh, Spencer Howard. It's Casey Mize and Brendan McKay. These are all guys with backspinning fastballs. Uh, and Lynch's is more of a sinker shape, and it's why I'm off of him a little bit more. But yeah, the way we evaluate pitching is going to, I think it's going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everyone is sort of moving to the middle. Did you do a clean, like how many pitchers and how many hitters are on uh, each of our hundreds? Actually, I have not. Sort of no. mashup. I think I had about 50 guys okay. uh, out of 120 that were pitchers. Okay. Um, yeah, I just think that more of them are moving toward the middle of the, the war continuum because war is finite, right? There are only so many wins that can go around right. during the course of the big league season. So some, I just think the slices of the war pie for pitchers are going to be distributed to a greater number of arms and everyone is going to contribute a little bit less individually on average. So I think that's not a thing I intend on reflecting, but I think it is unintentionally a thing that is being reflected uh, upon my reflection of the list. I am 60-40, well, exactly. 60 hitters, 40 pitchers. Okay. I just counted. Um, I actually, it's funny, all the pitchers you named other than Lynch, I think we generally agree on. I actually debated Sixto was down to about 49 on my list and was thinking about sort of sending him lower. And yeah, I think in that case, it's probably, I like him less, but talk to enough people who liked him more than I liked him at least that I settled in a little bit of a you know, averaging of the two, but he was behind Edward Cabrera on my list. It was interesting. I got texts yesterday from people saying, you got that right to have Cabrera, Edward Cabrera, the Marlins pitching, Marlin, is the Marlins top pitching prospect over Sixto Sanchez. So that was interesting. But in Lynch's case, it is, I think the fastball will get him some ground balls. I actually agree. I don't think it is much of a swing and miss fastball, or at least he's not using it enough as one. He's going to have to pitch somewhat differently with it. It is that he has such arm speed and potentially three above average or better secondary pitches. They're not always there, but he also hasn't pitched a whole lot. And he really hasn't pitched with this velocity for very long. He was not throwing this hard. I saw him at the ACC tournament in uh, at the University of Virginia. What was that, a year and to almost two years ago now? And he was yeah. very, very good. He was topping at 95. And now he'll sit 94, 95. And we saw him touch 99 in that fall stars game out in Arizona. So I think that he is, um, I think he is the highest upside of that stable of Kansas city arms, even without sort of the high quality, you know, strong secondary characteristics on the fastball, because I think he's got the other weapons. Whereas a guy like Sixto Sanchez has kind of always been a great arm in search of good secondary stuff, especially in search of a good breaking ball. And there's concerns about the body and work ethic and other things that drive Sixto lower and frankly drive Lynch higher too, is that he's sort of considered, I think, one of their better workers and one of their more intelligent young prospects in a royal system that has a lot of really good pitching prospects right now. Yeah, the um, I think, yeah, I'm on Chris Bubik. Certainly mm-hmm. he's another guy who he sits like 992, but the fastball has sneaky carry. Yep. Um, they don't Brady see Singer it, too. Th- I don't know how much you've seen right, him. You, know, yeah. you saw him at the Futures game, but they do not. I mean, he was here in Wilmington. He's fun to watch because I always enjoy pitchers like that. Because uh, For listeners who don't know, I live very close to the Wilmington Blue Rocks. I go to their games a ton. You want to send good pitchers here? Great. I'm home in two hours. I'm a huge fan of that. And Bubich was one of those because hitters just did not see the ball. A-ball hitters, at least, could not see the ball out of his hand. And he would just fastball change up them to death and i was there for it yeah he was bad his junior year at um stanford and the royals that draft had all of these picks and i think you and i both assumed 
based on the Royals' tendencies as an organization and just based on what is typical for teams who have that many picks in the top 50 to do is at least mix in a bunch of high upside high school talent with uh, like safer college guys, like diversify your bonds basically. Yeah. Um, And instead they just took a bunch of value college arms mostly. Mm -hmm. Um, And Kyle Isbell, the outfielder from UNLV, who is actually on the cusp of my hundred and it's worked out pretty great. We, I think both of us thought it was pretty vanilla at the time, uh, but it's worked out great. Singer it pitches it against the Cubs tomorrow. I'm hoping to get in to see him. Um, but yeah, Bubik is, was a top 100 guy for me. Same with Lynch. Uh, Jackson Coar, the righty who they took from Florida in that draft. Uh, he's like 94, 96, touch and eight with a great changeup. He's going to be something. So yeah, I think they crushed it. And they have an interesting yes. uh, group of mid-rotation types coming up. And it's just about piecing the other, the other guys between them. Speaking of one of those pieces, Bobby Witt, who they took last year's draft uh, early mm-hmm. on, T.J. Abrams, Marco Luciano were the three guys here in Arizona mm-hmm. uh, who were clearly like top of the group. How did you order those guys and why? You had them back to back to back, by the way, 22, 23, 24, just in that order, which I, yeah. I enjoy very much. Um, so I had them in the same order. I just had a lot more separation between them. I think Abrams is the most polished of those players, and that's why. Like I think he's the furthest along, and I think he has the fewest questions about the hit tool, um, where it is right now and what it ultimately projects to. Uh, whereas with Wit, I think Wit's got – I think he's going to come into power. He can really throw. He can really run. He is a no-doubt shortstop for me. But he's going to swing and miss some. That swing can get long. He can collapse his backside a bit. There were some questions about him hitting against better competition because where he played, the schedule his school played, he didn't face a lot of great competition. The last time I saw him as an amateur, he couldn't have faced much worse competition. I'm pretty sure he went he went four for four, and it was not a great four for four, if that makes any sense. It's nothing against him. It was just like who he was facing was not really a particularly good test. And Luciano, I think there are even more questions about swing and miss, pitch recognition. He just might be a little further behind at the time. The thing I struggled with, and you would have struggled with this probably more because you saw them over the summers, C.J. Abrams hit 410 out there. What do you do when you go see a guy and he's like 12 for 10 in the three games you saw him? It's just you'd never – you couldn't see this guy making out. It was almost like, can you just get him out of here so we can stop talking about how C.J. Abrams – I think he – didn't he start with a 20-game hitting streak? He started his pro yeah, career he, out of high school with that. Some kind of wild, yeah, uh, hit streak. When you're a 70 or 80 runner mm-hmm. with an advanced with an advanced field for contact here in the AZL, you're going to bat at like 430 or whatever it was for yep. him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's incredible. Uh, the Some of the Kenny Lofton discussion is not – crazy to me like I can kind of see it mechanically I don't think Abrams can play shorts mm-hmm. but I agree with you that of those three guys that I feel the best about the bat to ball stuff there I have him in center field but agree that it doesn't really matter right he's because of his speed even if he can't play a middle infield spot he's going to play center field it's still a premium defensive position I know people in front offices who have this guy like in their global top 10 Abrams Mm-hmm. Luciano is like the the combo of the hit and the power is the best of the three to me. He also has a chance to move off of shortstop, and if he can't play there, then it's probably right field for him because he does not have Abrams' straight line speed. And then I agree with you on Bobby, the, the lock of the three to play shorts. I think there's big power now, comparable to Luciano's right now. Um, 
but the bat to ball is behind the other two. And so it is sort of like a lit, like a Rorschach test of what, who you like. Do you yep. want the safe bat to ball? Do you want the safe defensive profile? Or do you want the combo of hit and power? That's probably there. And it's an interesting question. And I, you know, answered it with my, the way I had them ranked. It's, it's an exercise that I, there's a lot of wiggle room. And as long as there's, there's a logic to the way you're going about doing it, I think it's, it's fine. Like we have strong opinions, but they're not emotional. Right. right. And I think that um, when, when we talk about this stuff, the fact that you and I have a dude 70 spots apart, like it seems fine. Right. It's just a different perspective on the we same can, guy. We can still be friends. Uh, I will ask you about one more. Uh, this is less a difference of opinion on players, but uh, just more of a process question. I get asked, readers asked a lot this week about process. and uh, It's about p- dealing with pitchers who've been hurt. And you and I've talked a little bit recently about AJ Puck versus Jesus Luzardo. You have Luzardo higher. You have him in your top 10. I have him a little behind Puck. And, like I think we agree, Luzardo is it's really good. It's a, it's at least number two starter stuff. I think above fastball, well above changeup. His breaking balls turned out to be pretty good. It wasn't actually anywhere near this good when the A's first got him. But he's had some injury trouble, including he's had some shoulder stuff. Never had surgery on the shoulder. He said Tommy John. Um, the shoulder stuff always scares me in particular for any pitcher. So how do you incorporate information like that into your process, or or any you know finding out that a pitcher has been maybe just shut down for a little bit, but it never turns out to be that serious. How, how do you consider that when trying to rank yeah. pitchers when, when almost everyone's had something in their past? Right. Yeah. The weighing different types of injuries is, is hard. The frequency of Tommy John surgeries and the rate of recovery and our degree of confidence in what it means to be having Tommy John and be rehabbing from it uh, means that I assess Tommy John is like a function of time. All being equal, if I have two pitching prospects that are exactly the same in every way, they're going to be the exact same pitcher. One of them is going to be in the big leagues a couple of years before the other one. Then I'd rather have that guy, especially if you're a general manager. Um, you'd rather have that guy because in two years you might be on the hot seat or or not have a job. So uh, typically that's how teams behave. So if you have Tommy John and you're going to rehab for a year and a half, I just slide you back on my list next to someone with comparable stuff whose timeline is now more in line with the player who's having the surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but the, the other stuff, shoulders, uh, obliques, soft tissue injuries for hitters that seem to be constant hamstring stuff, um, your Roman Quinns of the world. Oh, you gosh, can only yes. learn over time that, that they are injury prone, right? Like I was at Reds White Sox uh, in Goodyear a couple of days ago. Jonathan India did not have a great fall league. Some of the he had hand issues last year. He left the the field after a fly ball, like shaking and and wiggling his thumb around as if you know it was hurting. And knowing that he had hand issues the year before, like these are the types of things that you know. How do you assess that? Is the hand injury why he didn't have a whole lot of power in fall league, or is 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 a reason that he might? continue to lack it going forward. Like some of the stuff that is tougher to, to nail down than Tommy John's, which are, um, and now I have a process for handling. Right. 
Uh, it's funny you mentioned Roman Quinn. He is the, and I never, I actually don't think I ever put him on my top 100, even though there were people who'd argue he should be because he was an 80 runner and he turned into a good center fielder. I mean, that is the classic example of the guy who just has shown us he can't stay healthy. Absolutely cannot stay on the field. Whatever the reason is, it, it almost doesn't matter. He just can't. And until he proves otherwise, and that's probably not going to happen at this point, we sort of just need to go with that. If they, if someone, what is the expression? If someone tells you who they are, believe them. Obviously, I'm being a little flippant by using it here, but yeah, that is true. If if a player keeps getting hurt this often, you should probably just we probably just need to accept that that's what he is. Do you have anybody else that you want to talk about? I think that if we had to guess at who, what individual players people would most be interested in hearing us talk about, I would bet Nick Madrigal is at the very top of the list. Sure. Why don't we talk about him for a second? That you, and he, I don't know what. Was, there's no. Is this the first episode of your pod? This is the first episode. What, Are you honored? Okay. You're my first guest. I am honored, and okay. you're you very be lucky that I haven't tried to set a profanity bar. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to this point. I don't know if we're allowed. Um, I should probably check that because I spent too much time in this industry. Okay. I am, yeah, I can't be trusted. Okay, in polite company. So in terms of things like that and length and tone and what you want to say here, like I'm, I'm mindful of. I'm letting you sort of guide things, but um, yeah, like I want to talk about Madrigal. Okay, okay. so I had Madrigal at 41. He was not. He was not on your list, right? Or am I missing something? He was not on my list. He wasn't on my list last year okay. either. I'm the guy who would like not know that there was a back of the test that I had just turned in, so I was just checking. So I think it is interesting to talk about this guy. I don't think you might be right. Okay, if you think his back to ball stuff is incredible, we've been watching Nicky Madrigal since he was like the the guy who was too small to command a bonus that he deemed acceptable coming out of high school. Uh, Then he raked in college. We got to see a lot of him at Oregon State. He played every day basically from day one. Mm -hmm. And he continues to have like elite bat-to-ball skills. uh, Example in, it's visually apparent to me and it's statistically apparent. He had a 2% swinging strike rate last year. It was the best in the minors. But if you think that he's going to produce offensively, like Jose Iglesias, who also, in the big league context, has like elite bat-to-ball mm-hmm. metrics, basically. Like his strikeout rate is super low. Then you can't 50 or better Madrigal, which is like my line for the 100, because Jose Iglesias, who is an elite defensive shortstop, has proven over time to basically be like a 45. And so I think that it is totally fine that he is not on your list. But I do think that the feel for contact, what he is defensively at second base, which oddly had the lowest average adjusted runs created plus of all the positions in baseball last year. Maybe mm-hmm. we can talk about why that might be. <laughs> but, uh, but I do think, yeah, like this is a premium position. This guy's really good at playing de- defense there. This contact skill is super incredible. And Luis Arias performed last year. He's like the version of it that we might have been underrating. I think mm-hmm. there's an argument that I especially have overcorrected on this type of player. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm curious as to why you decided to exclude him. I saw Magical a couple of times last year, and I don't see – first of all, it, he has very little ceiling. Right? There's very little chance for this player to become a star. One, because there's almost nobody who looks like that in the big leagues um, who's become a star uh, in terms of height, weight, strength – uh, 
and also because of the profile. I looked, there's, you know, I sort of have cracked, and I think I wrote in the thing that has uh, my White Sox report, which will actually have a note, a scouting report on Madrigal. He's uh, in their top 10, obviously. You know, a player like that basically has to hit 320 to be valuable. And the number of guys in the last 10 seasons who've hit 320 or better in the majors with an isolated power of under 100, which Madrigal is clearly going to do at this point, um, unless he grows, uh, it's happened once. D. Gordon did it. And well, D. Gordon was an 80 runner. And so that's probably why he was able to do that. He had 333. And by the way, he didn't repeat it. Uh, there were a couple other guys who hit 300 plus. Ben Revere did it at one point. DJ LeMay, did it a couple of times in Colorado with these low isolated powers. If you can't make hard contact, it's hard to hit over 300. And then you don't have the added benefit of hitting for a lot of power. And I'm not convinced he's even going to walk quite that much because why would pitchers not simply challenge him and say, go ahead. You're not going to hit it over the center fielder, let alone hit it over the fence. He really barely hit the ball over the outfielder's heads other than dead pull last year. And on top of that, he's not an elite runner. He's not an elite defensive second baseman. If he were a shortstop, if he were a center fielder, if he were a catcher, if he were an 80 runner, those would be considerations in his favor. But I see a lot of just very good. He's He does a lot of things very well, but not exceptionally. And, you know, on top of it, the sort of final point is that this game is just so power oriented at this point. I think that he'd be a guy where even if he is moderately productive, you're looking for more out of second base. You're expecting more power out of second base. And a guy who hits maybe 300 but slugs 360 and just plays okay defense, and his on base percentage is fine. He's not adding a lot of value on the bases. That's nice, a nice player but not somebody with any kind of upside. And the floor, frankly, is this guy gets to the big leagues and hits about 270, which is entirely possible. He's not a regular because he has no secondary characteristics, defense, speed, power, OVP. They're going to get him to be a regular. So a lot of White Sox fans, the ones who were polite enough yesterday, they didn't have to block them on social media, were saying, we've got a high floor. It's actually not really. His floor is this in the sense that he's going to play in the big leagues. There's no question he's going to play in the big leagues. He's probably playing the big leagues right now uh, simply because of the contact skills and because he plays second base adequately. But his floor is not a regular. Right, his floor is a big leaguer, and those are two pretty substantially different things. And I know I favor upside on my list, so do you, I think, in general. But you probably, uh, I'm guessing from what you've said, and I know what you've, you and I have discussed about him in the past, you think his floor is a bit higher. I think your concerns are valid. I disagree with you about the assessment of his, his defense and the way the speed plays because of how quick, I think the most relevant application of speed is home to first because that turns outs into not outs. Um, and he gets out of the box quick. I, you know, the, he is not a seven runner, but the run times are often seventies. Um, and I just, I love his actions at second base. I think that they're lightning quick. Um, and so I just have a better defensive assessment of him. The exit below stuff. So this guy's average exit below last year was 84 magic all. Mm-hmm. The big leaguers who live in this zone of about 84 miles per hour. I mentioned Luis Arias before. He's up at 86, 87. Mm-hmm. Altuve also up at 86, 87. I think that's relevant uh, difference. Cesar Hernandez, 86. Uh, Eric Sogard, 84. Kevin Newman, 84, which I think is instructive for you. Mm-hmm. Mickey Lopez, David Fletcher, Colton Wong, D. Gordon. So you can see this is the offensive area that he is going to have to live. And you can see how 
if you had to rank David Fletcher and Colton Wong on 100 now, you know, do you do it? If you nope. had to put Kevin Newman on 100 right now, do you do it? I didn't, actually. Newman, his last two years, he was eligible. I didn't. And he's a shortstop. It's not a great shortstop, but he plays shortstop. Wong would probably have the best argument. Wong as a prospect is not... Career. Yeah, and he's a better defensive second baseman now than he was when he was a prospect, too. I think he did make my top 100 at least once before getting the big leagues. And I also think a lot of Wong's early career struggles were maybe a function of Mike Matheny, after all, and not a function of Colton Wong. So we'll see. That's you know I, I'm giving Colton Wong the benefit of the doubt there. But these other guys that you're mentioning would not be top 100 guys for me because there's no ceiling. There's no path for David Fletcher to turn into a star. There's no path, I think, for Kevin Newman to turn into a star. I think they're good big leaguers. Kevin Newman was on my, my top 100 at one point, but that version of Kevin Newman today, given what we know about his hitting characteristics and the way the game has continued to change towards guys hitting for more power, it's probably not a top 100 prospect for me. And that's a, I, you know, hopefully that is consistent with not having Madrigal on my rankings too. Yeah, and I, again, I think it's valid. Uh, this is... Colton, the Colton Wong type of player, what David Fletcher did, has basically done over the course of a season and a half now. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's evidence that this type of player we collectively tend to underrate. But again, I think that you could argue, and I had a front office person tell me this, that he thought that I was overcorrecting for being light on the Fletcher types, the, you know, dating back to Jose Ramirez type guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is, yeah, this is the area where we're living and trying to parse through is Nicky Lopez a top 100 prospect or is he just outside, like as a second division regular? This is the line, basically. Well, Eric, it has been an absolute pleasure fighting with you. I think we both leave this conversation alive, which is probably a disappointment to some readers, especially White Sox fans, but they'll have to wait for next time for the actual violence to occur. That's fine. I'm sure that we'll, we'll be in the same place at the same time. And yeah, it's been a while since I've been in a fight. so. I'm interested to mix it up. Like, let's go. I'm ready. I'll be out in Arizona in a few weeks, so we'll make that happen. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. If you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com slash K-L-A-W. That's my nickname, Claw, K-Law, whatever. I I answer to all of these things. That's theathletic.com slash K-L-A-W. Everything we do is included with a subscription, including my recently released Top 100 Prospects list. And if you're enjoying this show on a platform that allows you to rate and review the podcast, please give us a rating and a review. I greatly appreciate it. That's all for this week. I will be back next week. We're going to keep this going weekly through the baseball season. Uh, It's really great to be back podcasting, to be back on this platform. Uh, And going forward, too, I will send out notes if people want to send in questions for me to potentially answer on future podcasts. I'm going to do that. We'll generally have guests, but as I have large features coming out like the top 100, I want to give people an opportunity to ask some questions that might be of interest where the answer might be of interest to everybody. So follow me on Twitter at Keith Law. You can find me on Facebook. It's at Keith Law Writer. I am on Instagram, MR, Mr. Keith Law. It's a lot of pictures of food and board games, though, maybe a little bit less on the baseball side. And I do have an email newsletter, tinyletter.com slash Keith Law. You can follow me at any of those places. You'll get announcements on all my content at The Athletic, as well as future podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening.